18 of our wives and sisters in Christ are away this weekend on retreat at Holden Beach. Let's take advantage of their absence and talk a little football. <laughs> if you're a woman, don't tune out. We'll be right back. Football, like other organized sports, is a game with boundaries and rules. Indeed, it would be nearly impossible to play football without some consistent boundaries and rules. Here are a few examples. Every football field is 100 yards long plus the end zones. The forward pass has become a staple of most offenses, but it is an illegal forward pass if an offensive lineman is more than five yards downfield. Play ends when the ball carrier or receiver steps out of bounds. There are penalties for tackling or hitting a player out of bounds. If a player crosses a line of scrimmage before the ball is snapped, that player is offsides, and there is a five-yard penalty for that. Offensive linemen are meant to block the defensive linemen from getting to the ball carrier. But if they use their hands or otherwise hold the defensive linemen, that is a penalty. You get the point. There are rules. If you're going to play the game, you must play by the rules. There are also spiritual rules. You women can tune back in now. We must play by the rules. God himself plays by the rules. Some of those rules we find in today's epistle lesson. While you turn to chapter 2 of Hebrews, let me tell you a funny story about one of my seminary professors. I studied the epistle of Hebrews under the Reverend Dr. Philip Edgecombe Hughes. On the first day of class, Dr. Hughes said, I'm going to write on the board a list of commentaries on Hebrews that I recommend. He wrote five or six titles and authors on the board. Then he said, there is one more that modesty prevents me from listing. I raised my hand and I said, Dr. Hughes, which is the very best? He said, the one that modesty prevents me from listing. <laughs> Now let's get back to the rules. There are four rules that we find in today's lesson from Hebrews. Number one, first the cross, then the crown. Number two, representation requires identification. Number three, fear enslaves us, faith sets us free. Number four, God's wrath is justified, it must be satisfied. We have to hold all these things together. One is not a prerequisite for the other. They're all true at one time. We will take them, however, as they come first in the text. You will see some repetition. Our first rule is, first the cross, then the crown. Look at verses 9 and 10. But we see him who for a little while was made lower than the angels, namely Jesus, crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death, so that by the grace of God he might taste death for everyone. For it was fitting that he for whom and by whom all things exist, in bringing many sons to glory, should make the founder of their salvation perfect 
through suffering. The ESV text reads, but we see him, dot, 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 namely Jesus. That seems a bit awkward to me. Many translations simply read, but we see Jesus. The Greek allows either translation. I prefer the latter. That is the title of this sermon, but we see Jesus. The question is, when we see Jesus, what do we see? The first chapter of Hebrews argues that Jesus is superior to the angels. But here the writer acknowledges that for a little while, Jesus was made lower than the angels. That is to say that he emptied himself of his divine glory and became a man. The point is that Jesus was crowned with glory and honor because of the suffering of death. The suffering of death had to come before he was crowned with glory and honor. There is an order for things that cannot be changed. First he suffered, then he entered into glory. The rule is, first the cross, then the crown. It is important to understand that, death, that the death he suffered was not because he deserved to die, but that by the grace of God, he had to taste death for others. By God's grace, by his free and unmerited favor, Jesus suffered death because of God's favor toward us, his love for you and me. He tasted death for our sake, and because he did, he was crowned with glory and honor. In his epistle to the Philippian church, Paul said it like this, Jesus humbled himself by becoming obedient to the point of death, even death on a cross. Therefore, God has highly exalted him and bestowed on him the name that is above every name, so that at the name of Jesus, every knee should bow in heaven and on earth and under the earth, and every tongue confess that Jesus Christ is Lord to the glory of God the Father. O oh, beloved, if we understood these few verses from Hebrews, from Philippians, we would indeed bow our knees and confess Jesus as Lord. My heart's desire is that we at King of Kings would understand the death, his death on the cross and so live our lives that the watching world would see Jesus Christ in us. Jesus, who is the founder of our salvation, was made perfect through suffering. He suffered for us. The question is, are we willing to suffer for him? Paraphrasing what Paul said elsewhere in, to the Philippians, to know the power of Jesus' resurrection, we must be willing to suffer like him. First the cross, then the crown. The rule applies to us as well as to Jesus. Our second rule is representation requires identification. Look at verse 11 through the first half of verse 14. For he who sanctifies and those who are sanctified all have one origin. That is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. And again, I will put my trust in him. And again, behold, I and the children God has given me. Since therefore the children share the flesh and blood, 
he himself likewise partake, partook of the same things. He who sanctifies is Jesus. We know it is Jesus, not the Father, not the Holy Spirit, because the second sentence in verse 11 reads, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers. The he in both cases is Jesus. Only God the Son became a man, became our brother. Those who are sanctified are believers, men, women, and children who are saved by God's grace. They are sanctified, that is, set apart, made holy, separated from this fallen world. He who sanctifies and those who are sanctified have one origin, that is, God the Father. Jesus is the Son of God, eternally begotten, not created, of one substance with the Father. We are created, adopted sons and daughters. Continuing in verse 11, that is why he is not ashamed to call them brothers, saying, I will tell of your name to my brothers. In the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise. That quote, I will tell of your name to my brothers, in the midst of the congregation, I will sing your praise, is from Psalm 22, one of the most descriptive passages of the crucifixion in the Old Testament. The force of the reference is that the purpose of the incarnation, the reason Jesus came and identified with us, his brothers and sisters, is that, we might, that he might die in our place, that he might represent us in his offering upon the cross. By his death on the cross, he declared God's love for us in the midst of the great congregation. The second and third quotes from the Old Testament, I will put my trust in him, and behold, I and the children God has given me, are from Isaiah chapter 8, which immediately precedes the Messianic prophecy of chapter 9. For to us a child is born, to us a son is given. The author of Hebrews puts these things, pulls these things together, saying, Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things. That is to say that Jesus shared our flesh and blood. He shared our humanity. To us a child is born. As John said in the prologue to his gospel, the word became flesh and dwelt among us. He identified with us that he might represent us as a high priest. He took on flesh and blood so that he could be both priest and sacrifice. Jump down to verse 17. It reads, Therefore he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God. In every respect he was like us fully human, so that he could be a high, our high priest, offering himself as a sacrifice for sin. As Paul said to the Roman church, the death he died, he died to sin once for all. The rule is representation requires identification. Man sinned, man must pay the price. Jesus is that man. Rule number three is, Fear enslaves us, faith sets us free. 
Look at verses 14 through 16. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, he himself likewise partook of the same things, that through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. That through death he might destroy the one who has the power of death, that is the devil, and deliver all those who through death, who fear, through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Beloved Jesus, had Jesus simply died on the cross, and that was the end of it, death and the devil would have won the game. But death could not hold him. He rose from the dead, from the grave, victorious over death and the devil. In his resurrection, he destroyed death and the devil. The third stanza of In Christ Alone, Keith Geddes' hymn says, There in the ground his body lay, light of the world in darkness slain. Then bursting forth in glorious day, up from the grave he rose again. And as he stands in victory, sin's curse has lost its grip on me. For I am his and he is mine, bought with the precious blood of Christ. From the beginning, man has lived in fear of death. Cain, who killed his brother Abel, cried out to the Lord, Whoever finds me will kill me. He killed his brother without hesitation, but feared his own death. The fear of death enslaves us still. But now in faith we have overcome fear. The writer of Hebrews tells us, For surely it is not angels that he helps, but he helps the offspring of Abraham. We who trust in Jesus Christ are no longer the offspring of Adam. We are the offspring of faithful Abraham. We're no longer enslaved by fear. We are set free by faith in Jesus Christ. As Paul said to the church in Colossae, he has delivered us from the domain of darkness and transferred us to the kingdom of his beloved son. Listen to the fourth stanza of Getty's hymn. No guilt in life, no fear in death. This is the power of Christ in me. From life's first cry to final breath, Jesus commands my destiny. No power of hell, no scheme of man can ever pluck me from his hand till he returns and calls me home. Here in the power of Christ I'll stand. Paul wrote to the Roman church, for as by the one man's disobedience the many were made sinners, so by the one man's obedience, the many will be made righteous. That is to say that death and condemnation came upon the human race through the sin of Adam. But faith and righteousness have set us free from sin and death through the obedience of Jesus Christ. Fear enslaves us. Faith sets us free. And so we come to the last of our spiritual rules. God's wrath is justified. It must be satisfied. Verse 17 and 18 read, 
Therefore, he had to be made like his brothers in every respect so that he might become a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he, he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. We have dealt above with the fact that Jesus had to suffer before he received the crown of glory. First the cross, then the crown. So we can expect to suffer for his sake before receiving our crown. We have dealt with the fact that Jesus had to be made like his brothers in order to be a faithful high priest. Representation requires identification. He was made like us in every respect. What he did not assume, he did not redeem. And we have dealt with our fear of death. Fear enslaves us, faith sets us free. As John wrote in his first epistle, there is no fear in love, but perfect love casts out fear. So what does it mean that God's wrath is justified? It must be satisfied. The context of today's epistle lesson is a warning against drifting away, against neglecting such a great salvation. The first three verses of Hebrews chapter 2 read, Therefore we must pay more, clo much closer attention to what we have heard, lest we drift away from it. And since the message declared by angels proved to be reliable, and every transgression or disobedience received a just retribution, how shall we escape if we neglect such a great salvation? God is a holy God and righteous God. He hates sin. He hates it. Why? Because sin is self-destructive behavior. God wants us saved, not destroyed. If we drift away, if we neglect our great salvation, God has no choice. His righteousness demands punishment. He is right, he is right and just to demand payment for sin. Oh, beloved, that is why Jesus came, not to help the angels, but to help humanity, to help you and me. Propitiation is a big word. It means to satisfy the wrath of God through an atoning sacrifice. As the children of, Ab of Adam, we stand condemned. As children of faithful Abraham, through faith in Jesus Christ, we stand forgiven, redeemed, washed in the blood of the Lamb that God, the blood of the Lamb of God that takes away the sin of the world. To return to our football metaphor, God is a referee. He demands that we play by the rules. But in and of ourselves, we are a sorry lot, broken, unable to follow the rules. But by the grace of God, Jesus tasted death for everyone in order to bring many sons to glory. First the cross, then the crown. Since therefore the children share in flesh and blood, Jesus himself likewise partook of the same flesh and blood. He was not ashamed to call us his brothers. Representation requires identification. Through death, Jesus destroyed the one who has the power of death that is the devil, 
and delivered all those who through fear of death were subject to lifelong slavery. Fear enslaves us, faith sets us free. Jesus became a merciful and faithful high priest in the service of, in the service of God to make propitiation for the sins of the people. For because he himself has suffered when tempted, he is able to help those who are being tempted. God's wrath is justified. It must be satisfied. It is satisfied by the cross of Jesus Christ. Man sinned. Man must pay the price. Jesus, who knew no sin, became a man, became sin for us. All the blood of bulls and goats could not satisfy the wrath of God. Only the blood of Jesus, the perfect Lamb of God, the God-man, could satisfy, could make propitiation for sin. Allow me to close with the second stanza of Getty's great hymn. In Christ alone who took on flesh, fullness of God in helpless babe, this gift of love and righteousness, scorned by the one he came to save. Till on that cross, as Jesus died, the wrath of God was satisfied. For every sin on him was laid. Here in the death of Christ, I live. God's wrath is justified. It must be satisfied. Will you, brothers and sisters, accept the finished work of Jesus on the cross to satisfy the wrath of God on your behalf, to set you free from sin and death? I urge you, offer yourself, your soul and your body to be a living sacrifice to God. Let's pray.